Welcome, welcome. My name is Neely McQueen, and I'm one of the pastors here. I work with the middle schoolers and high schoolers. Uh, yeah, whoop, whoop, whoop. Uh, you know, I realize today is December 28th, and we just have a few days left of 2014, and then we head into 2015. And I think this time of year, it just specifically this week lends itself to kind of looking back and looking forward, looking back to the past, this past year and looking forward to what's to come. And I can't help, but when I think of 2014, I think of one word, owl. Some of you are like, that's a strange word. I'm like, yes, it is. Here's the deal. A couple months ago, I was sitting at uh, the kitchen table doing homework with my kids and there, we have a fireplace with a wood stove in it, and there was a scratching noise at the wood stove. And I was like, that's strange. That sounds like an animal in my house. And uh, I called my husband, and I said, there is something in my house right now. You need to get home. This is, this is an issue you've got to take care of. And so I hang up the phone, and it's still going crazy. I send my kids into the other room because it's actually starting to move the wood stove a little bit. So I like take my phone over. I'm like, okay, I'm just going to record it. Get a little bit of it for Josh to hear and see, and then we'll know what the problem is. So I'm standing there super close filming it, and all of a sudden, a squirrel pops its head out of it, and I'm like, whoa! I screamed so loud. It freaked everybody. It freaked me out, freaked my kids out. It freaked the squirrel out. He pulled himself back into the, the wood stove. We were like all terrified. So I called my, I got on the phone. I'm like, Josh, you get home right now. We got serious, we got wildlife in the house. Like, you need to get home. So he comes home, and we decide, okay, we can do this. This, we ended up uh, setting up a pathway to our slider with furniture. Like we're turning our dining room table over. And we've got this like little runway for the squirrel, right? So we open the we open the wood stove and the squirrel's like all curled up to die because I've just freaked it out. You know, I've given it a heart attack. So we poke it with a broom because that seems like an act of kindness. So we poke it with the broom and, and the squirrel just takes off and runs out of the house. Problem solved. We're like... We're amazing. We did that. So it, to our surprise, two weeks later, we're sitting having breakfast at the same counter, and we hear a scratching noise again. And you're like, these people are dumb. They should have put something on the fireplace, the chimney. Yes, you're right. We should have. But we didn't. And we hear the scratching, and we're like, okay, it's got to be a squirrel again. So let's, we set up the pathway, and we're really smart and protective parents, so we sent our kids to their room and told them to get in their beds because that seems safer if the squirrel should decide to attack them. So we sent them into their rooms, and as we're doing, setting up the table and making the pathway, we realize the scratching sounds a little different than a squirrel. So I get a broom, so I'm ready, you know, to like bat whatever comes out. I don't know what's going to happen. And so, you know, my husband opens the wood stove up again, and, you know, many of you know my husband, and he's a very godly man, and a lot of you call him Jesus Jr. Um, I should just say the words that were coming out of his mouth are not found in Scripture anywhere um, during this time. So he pulls it open and he looks and he's like, I, I think it's a bunny. And then the bunny turns its head like this. And my husband said, oh, uh, that is not a bunny, it's an owl, and it's coming out. And so we just start trekking down, we're running as fast as we can. We run into, my kids, run, we, we both run into the same room, which some of you are like, so you have a favorite kid, right? 
no, it's the closest room to things going down. We're like so scared. We don't care. We just want to get in a room. And we can literally hear the owl like hitting the wall, coming by, like hitting the door. We're like, what is happening? And so it gets quiet. So my husband finally bravely comes out and peeks into our bedroom, and right there on our bed frame is sitting the owl, just perched nicely. I think he then moved to the shower, to our bathroom, and here's, here's, yeah, there it is. Yeah. Oh, some of you are feeling bad for it. You should not feel bad for that owl. <laughs> um, so... It, he hung out there for about two hours. He didn't really want to come out. So Josh put on this outfit and, and got rid of him. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> Chase that out right out of our house. Um, you'll be happy to know we have finally put a cap on our fire, our chimney. So no more wildlife for us. So 2014 for me will always be the year of the owl. Um, that's just how it's going to be for me. But it's really not that simple. You can't really sum up a year with an animal. Some of us, maybe 2014 was an amazing year. Maybe you got a new job, you graduated from high school or college, you got engaged, you got married, maybe you had kids, grandkids. Maybe 2014 was an amazing year for you. Maybe it was a really tough year. Maybe things you hoped were going to happen didn't ever happen. Maybe it was a rough one. If you call Overlake home, then you know that September here in 2014 was a really rough month for us. There was a, a lot of overwhelming things happening in our church family. Within one week, just seven days, we endured bad news and tragedy, followed by more tragedy. And I remember sitting with my husband one night in the middle of it, and we were sitting together, and he just told me that he happened to read Psalms 77, and it just really spoke to him. But we didn't really unpack it anymore. But then two days later, tragedy struck again. So I, I found my Bible and I was like, I need to read what Psalm 77 says. And I've never had ever a passage come so alive to me. It was like what I was reading was what I was thinking and what I was feeling and what I was saying. And so this chapter, Psalm 77, it's filled with, this, with pain and with doubt and with questioning and even a little bit of hope, all in one chapter. And so I thought, what a way to kind of wrap up 2014 and look forward to the future of 2015 by reading Psalm 77 together, by looking at what we can learn from this passage. So you can follow along in your notes or on the screen, or you can open your Bible to Psalms 77, and we're just going to read that together. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Selah. 
Now, I want to stop right there because I just want to unpack that word sila a little bit. And I did a little research on it. I found a couple different meanings. One of them is just simply pause. It's a pause in the song. Another, another um, a source said interlude. And another one I found interesting was it summed it up as a change of musical direction. We're changing where we're going. Now, I, I've never written a song, I've never even written a poem, except a haiku, which I don't know if that even counts, but I, I've never done that. And so I, I don't know what it must have been like for the author of this psalm to sit down and write this. But at first, in my own uh, maybe immaturity, I thought he wrote it in one setting. But it's kind of a lot to write in one setting. There's a lot going on in this passage. So I actually think that maybe these pauses, maybe these silas, are, are a time where he pauses and he actually backs away and he says, you know what, I need a change of musical direction. One scholar said this, that yes, it means pause, but it's not pausing for no point. It's pausing to meditate, to think calmly. So the author pauses, he thinks, he meditates, and he moves somewhere. Let's continue with the passage. He says, Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all of your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the water saw you, O God, when the water saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock of the hand, at the, by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So you read this all together, and you can see that there is a lot of emotion going on here. And I love it, and I think it's, it's safe to assume that whatever this, this author, his name is Asaph, was going through was tough. It was rough. He was enduring something, and he was not afraid to be brutally honest with us to tell us the truth that this does not feel good. The Lord has disappeared. But he's trying. You can sense that he's trying to get us somewhere. But he's struggling. Even look at those last two sentences again. It's, it it kind of makes me laugh a little bit. You can tell he's trying. He says, your way, it's through the sea, your path through the great waters. Your, your footprints, I can't see them. I know you're doing something. I know you're at work, but I can't see it. As a side note, I think this is the original Footprints, also the better Footprints poem. Um, so if you have the other one tattooed on yourself, I'm real sorry about that, but this one is significantly better. Um, but I want to tell you, some of you need to hear this this morning, is that you have been told maybe, or maybe you've heard, or maybe you just assumed that to be a Christian means you're happy, you're joy-filled, life is grand, it all wraps up, and we can sum it up with these really great verses, and everything's hunky-dory. But when you don't feel that way, what do you do with it? When whatever you're experiencing doesn't match up with that, 
Well, we're then we're prone to pretend. We're prone to, to pretend that nothing is wrong, that everything is okay. But what I want to tell you this morning, that in our faith, in our faith historically and in our faith now, in our faith in this space, there is room for every emotion. There is room for anger. There is room for fear. There is room for pain. And there is room for hope. There's room for all of it. This psalm shows us that they can, they can exist together. No matter what you're going through, it's okay to feel it. The second thing that I kind of want to point out is that the author says remember four times. And then he says ponder and meditate multiple times in, in, in regards to reflection. And the author, he's going back. He goes back and he looks at significant times in the Israelites. He looks at Jacob and Moses and Aaron. What was interesting to me is when I did a little research, I noticed that the years, so this, this psalm was written during the time of David, and the years between Jacob and David are around 700 years. And the years between Moses and David are about 400. So let that sink in a little bit. Whatever the author of Psalm 77 is experiencing, he can't remember what happened last week or last year or 10 years ago. He has to go back 700 years to recall God's goodness. 400 years to recall God's goodness. And what we don't understand and maybe is, is lost on us, on us is, is how important history was to the Israelites. How important their story was to them. In fact, knowing their history and their lineage was more important to them than being relevant or what was in the future. Even Jewish people, they hold, now hold on to such great traditions. Any fiddler on the rough fans in the house, right? Traditions. That's not really how it sounds, so that maybe that didn't connect with you because I'm not really a singer, but check it out. The, all that to say they love, they crave their tradition. And this is interesting. In, in the young adult uh, ministry, the 18 to 25, I, I did a little quiz with them, and I said, hey, if you know the name of your great, 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 great grandfather, raise your hand. And only three people raised their hand, which is interesting. I mean, and truthfully, I don't even know my great-great-great-great-grandfather's name. I don't know it. But then, in this same room with mostly single people, I said, how many of you know the name of your future children? And about 50% of the room raised their hand. See, that's who we are, right? We don't, we don't spend as much time looking back. We spend so much time looking forward. We're always moving so fast. What's the next thing? What's on the horizon? What does the future hold? And I want to say that the faster our culture moves inside and outside the church, the more separated we come from our Christian traditions. And when we do that, when we strip meaning from our traditions, there becomes nothing for us to remember. But this is not true for the Israelites of this time. They, they memorize their lineage. You know, when we look at Scripture and there's the so-and-so begat so-and-so, so, and there's chapters of it. You know, we like, okay, check, I read those books, you know. They memorized them because their lineage, their history, remembering was so important to them. 
In fact, they built these practices into their life to remember it, remember things. And one of them was they would build altars, these little simple structures of rocks. And they would build them primarily to, build, to make a sacrifice. And they would make a sacrifice there because God's presence had been there. But it wasn't just for the sacrifice. It wasn't just for that moment. It was also so that they could look back on it. And they could look back on that altar and they could say, that is where God was. God showed up there. And I found it interesting. One theologian said this. He said, they believe that if God had appeared once at that site, it would be a good location for him to show up again. So I looked up scripture and I found four passages. I just want to read through them quickly of altars being built. So you can follow along. Genesis 35, 7 and 8 says this. Jacob built an altar there and named the place El Bethel, which means God of Bethel, because God had appeared to him there when he was fleeing from his brother Esau. Exodus 17, 15. Moses built an altar there and named it Yahweh Nissa, which means the Lord is my banner. Joshua 22:34. The people of Reuben and Gad named the altar Witness, for they said it is a witness between us and them that the Lord is our God too. Judges 6:24. And Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and named it Yahweh Shalom, which means the Lord is peace. Now just pick those four. I thought they were the most some of the most interesting because they were named. They were named to remember. So the people of Israelites spent a lot of time in war. You can imagine that the altar that symbolized Yahweh Shalom was an important place for them to remember. So great. That's interesting, Neely. Very interesting. But what does that mean for us? I believe in Psalm 77 there are three practices that we can take into our life that can become anchors for us for every season of life, for every high point, for every low point. And these practices, we can begin doing them now and they can carry us into the year. So here are the three practices. The first one is this, pause and look forward. Look forward. The word is hope, hope. And I think this time of year, it's natural. We're already thinking, what does 2015 have in store? We're already making our lists. But when we look at the psalmist, the Psalm 77, he says this, he says, will you ever show compassion again? Will you ever, God, I know that you have been compassionate in the past. Will you do it in the future? He's looking forward. And to even bring it up means he must have some little glimpse of hope. Hope. Hope is essential to our faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 says this, that faith is directly connected to our hope. And we hope for things that we can't see. So maybe you can't see anything right now. Maybe you can't see something to look forward to, but you can hold on to hope. Maybe you can't even come up with things to hope for right now. Well, you can, you can do what Jesus did. He taught us how to pray these simple words. He said, uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We can hope for God's kingdom. Because in this world, there's not a lot of God's kingdom present. We see death and we see violence. We see greed and we see hate. But we can hope for something different. We can hope and pray for God's kingdom to come to earth. 
so that where there is death, we would see life. Where there is violence, we would see peace. Where there is greed, we would see selflessness. And where there is hate, we would see love. But it's kind of a risky prayer. Richard Rohr says this. He says, to pray and actually mean thy kingdom come, we must be able to say, my kingdoms go. Psalm 77, he is stripped of his own kingdoms, so it's easy for him to hope for God's kingdom. So we pause, and we look forward, and we hope, and we pray for God's kingdom to come. For God's kingdom. And we hope, and we pray that we would be willing to be a part of God's movement in this world. The second practice is this. We pause and see the now. We celebrate. See, our cultural patterns are to rush through things, get to the next thing, check it off, and move forward. Just, we say this all the time in our house, just make it through. We just got to make it through this season. How fast can we go? And we have lost the art of celebrating. We have lost the art. Have you ever noticed, I feel like sometimes on Thanksgiving, we spend hours and hours to make a meal, and then we eat for 15 minutes and we're gone. We don't sit there and celebrate celebrate. I've been working on this art in my life for a long time. And I can think of distinct moments where I took time to pause and celebrate and I learned something about God. One of the first ones was when I was in college. Uh, I had a really rough week, uh, probably one of the worst weeks of my life. And it was tipped off. The, very, the, the pinnacle of it all was I came home one night late and I'd gotten a phone call from my dad. My dad said, I just need to tell you, um, I wanted to give you a heads up that I came home today from work and the house was empty. All the furniture was gone. And there was a note from your mom saying, I just can't do it anymore. And for some reason, this shook me to the core. I, my family had always been a, a place of stability. And suddenly, it was all shaken up. And I, I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed that my family was falling apart. And so I chose not to tell anybody and just pretend that everything was fine. Luckily, one of my best friends, her mom went to the church that my family went to and had seen what was going on, so she called my friend. And I'll never forget the night Kimberly brought a group of our friends into my room, and we sat on the floor, and they brought flowers and food, and we just sat together. And they just asked me, what's going on? Tell us the truth. And we just cried together. And in that moment, I learned something, because I felt God's presence so heavily in that moment. I learned something. I learned that, that what I should celebrate and what I should know is that God is present in his people. And so in that moment, I celebrated that reality and I built an altar and I named it God is present in his people. A few years later, I would go on to get engaged and married and I'll never forget my wedding day. You know, scripture comes alive when you experience something. And on my wedding day, uh, I, I realized the power of the scripture when God calls himself the groom and the church the bride. And suddenly this idea came alive for me. And I realized in the moment what it meant to make a promise to someone. And that God is constantly making promises with us and he is good to keep them. And he promises that he'll never leave us and he'll never forsake us. And in that moment... On that day, I, I, I built an altar, and I named it, God is the God of promises. If 
five years later, we would have our first son. And he would come into the world a bit dramatically. He would come eight weeks early, and so he ended up in the NICU. And I remember I had this vivid memory of being separated. You know, I could only be with him so much. I remember sitting in my room all alone, and I was writing in my journal, and I was kind of frustrated with, like, this is not how it's supposed to go. I had this all planned out. And I don't know why, but and suddenly God put this heaviness on my heart. This reality that millions of women around the world don't see their kids ever turn five because they don't have access to medical care. And suddenly, God was like, it was like an awakening to be grateful for all that I had, but also be aware of the injustice in the world. And I learned something about God in that hospital room. I learned that God is a God of justice. God is a God of justice. And so I built that altar and I named it God of justice. And then five years later, I'd be on a plane with my husband headed towards Ethiopia to adopt our daughter. And I'll never forget, if you've ever been to a third world country, it's overwhelming to the senses. But this reality of what it's like to be an orphan really sank in. And I think we, we quickly miss it a lot of times. But to walk into an orphanage filled with kids and know that only one of them was getting a family today. It's a horrific reality to be an orphan in the, in the world, especially in a third world country. To have no one, no one claim you as their own. And so in the middle of this, this trip, I have this total sense of the brokenness in this world. The brokenness and all that is wrong with the world. But I'm there getting my daughter. And in, this, in as much as there is broken, right next to it is redemption. And so I built an altar and I named it the God who redeems the broken. God who redeems the broken. And each of those became moments in my life where I was able to pause and celebrate. And one of the ways I did that was by journaling. I, I just like writing things down, what's happening, what I'm experiencing, what I'm learning. But maybe journaling isn't for you. My friend, Pastor Pat, he has this actual space set up in his office. It's like this little altar there, and you can see it. It's got this stuff from Kenya from a mission trip. It's got a wedding photo. It's got these moments, these physical things that he can see and remember when God moved in his life. Or you can do it by just telling others. It was so important to the Israelites to speak the history. The, the fathers and mothers would tell their children and they would tell their grandchildren and they would speak it. Maybe you just need to tell the story. You need to speak it out loud. If you've overcome something difficult, pause and celebrate it. If you have had a season of great joy, pause and celebrate it. Don't move too fast. Don't rush to the next thing and miss out on celebrating God's presence right now, God's hand right now. And this practice, it actually leads way to our final practice. Pause and look back. And the word there is remember. See, there's a chance in this room that some of us are really struggling. And we don't see an end to pain. We don't see an end to our doubt. And dreaming and hoping for the future seems difficult. Even celebrating now is hard. And maybe you resonate 
with the author of Psalm 77. And what maybe you need to do is look back and remember. Look back and see how God has shown up in your life. Reflect. Go back to your journals. Go back to that photo of a trip or a moment and just pause and remember. There was a difficult season of my life a few years back, and I remembered two things, that God is good and God is love. And so every morning during that difficult season, I'd wake up and I'd say, this is it. This is all I know, God, that you are good and that you are love, and I will keep moving forward because I could remember that. But in some sense, maybe you're like the author of Psalm 77, and you can't go back a week. You can't go back a year. You can't even go back 10 years. Maybe you need to go back 2,000 years to what we know of Jesus, this God-man who walked the earth and who taught us there's another way to live, there's another way to love, and that his love was perfect, and he would die and he would take our place on a cross, and he would become the greatest sacrifice on any altar. His was an altar of love. And at the last supper, before he went to the cross, he sat with his friends, and they shared a meal, and then he broke bread, and he said, this is my body. And he passed a cup, and he said, this is my blood. And what did he say in the midst of that? He said, do this in remembrance of me. It's like Jesus was setting this practice up for us. He was setting it up. He was saying, I know you're going to have struggles. He said, there's trouble in this world. There is trouble, but remember me. Remember what I've taught you. Remember that I love you. Remember that I have overcome. And so we remember. So communion, when we come to the table, isn't just simply a recognition of of maybe the cross, but it's a remembering of all that Jesus has done, all that he showed us, all that he's done for us. So it doesn't matter if you're in great joy or great despair, you can remember. And each of us, we can create space in our life to practice these. And when we practice them, they remind us that Jesus has overcome the world. They remind us, in a sense, they remind us of the footprints that we cannot see. That God is with us and he's for us. And that God's work is in our life. And then before I end, I want to do this. I, I think it's, it would be silly of me to talk about pausing and then not pause. So right now in the middle of my message, here's what I want to do. I want to pause. And inside your handout, there's this gray card. And you'll notice it. And you can pull it out. And on one side, it says, my prayers for 2015. And on the other side, it says, celebrate the moments from 2015. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to create a little bit of space for maybe us to do these things, to hope for the future, to celebrate the now. But we'll also uh, open up the, the communion tables. And maybe you need to pause and remember. Maybe you need to do all three of them. Maybe you need to take a simple moment and just fill out some prayers and some moments and then also share in communion with us. We're just gonna have a little space, a little time to experience these practices together. Let me pray. Jesus, I am so grateful for that reality in my life that your presence has been so clear, that that the reality that you are good and that you are love is so true. 
God, I pray that we would take time right now to reflect, to pause, and just, and just to meditate. God, on what you have done for us, what you are doing, and what you are yet to do for us, God. May we not be in a hurry. May we just sit and sit with it, God. And as we come to the table to take communion, God, may we remember all that you taught us, all that you lived, how you loved us, and your death and your resurrection, God. In Jesus' name.